Okay, so Charlie Johns. The first question is the typical, the revised Hermetics question, because some people, a few people have said five's too many and it was dragging on a bit. And I thought I still want it because I find the question interesting. Um, so I've condensed it down now. So it's three thinkers, living or dead, in a room, having a conversation. You get to sit in there. Which three do you pick and why? Mm. It's a difficult one because part of me just wants to watch certain philosophers because it would be really entertaining. But I think for a formal and like a didactic sense for me to learn something from, it would probably have to be quite boring, which would be Immanuel Kant with Hegel and possibly someone like Merleau-Ponty, I think, because... The phenomenology lineage there. Pretty much, yeah. I think it would answer a lot of questions concerning, say, you've got a Kantian perspective, critical perspective, and then, and then Hegel kind of just brings stuff out a bit more, this idea of the absolute, and I think that would be really interesting to see how, and, and obviously his idea of infinity, and I think those two, although they're very similar, have lots you know, against each other. So they really need to hash it out. But I don't think there's been a proper hashing out because it's it's kind of unfair for Hegel. Hegel has the last say, right? Because Kant's dead and buried. But oh, I mean, I'm going to disagree with you there that Kant's Kant's dead and buried. I'm uh, oh, I'm I sure mean, we're post- physically sorry. So he can't oh. come back and he can't come back and say, well, hold on a minute. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, Kant Kant is one of mine actually. He's a uh, He's a strange chap, and I'd I'd, uh, I'd love to meet him. I think I think he'd probably be a bit weird, uh, really really strange in real life though. Um, so the conversation there would be to answer kind of pretty classic, almost classical now questions of of um, time and space. Then uh, transcendental inquiry, yes, but also I think, and this feeds into my idea of neurosis. I think, which is whereabouts do concepts come from and it's the question of agency so yeah for so is it this is the thing here you've started with with the word you you know you put the word neurosis in there Mm. and um it's one of those terms that i think for people steeped in philosophy the meaning could kind of mutate and change so if you've read certain things neurosis suddenly means something different Mm -hmm. so perhaps you could explain maybe the classical meaning of neurosis and then um, some kind of some of the transformations that you think are key in in its in the word neurosis place okay well first of all i'd like to say that the ambiguity of the term should actually be seen as its strength um in the same way that philosophers still meditate on ideas of nature subjectivity being um neurosis i would be as ambitious to put it in the same category because it because precisely it hasn't been able to be located empirically it hasn't been turned into something that's falsifiable in a scientific way so first of all that's that's its strength not some kind of postmodern um, ambiguity that we can just throw on anything or relativize completely right that's my standpoint um the simple answer to neurosis, there's lots of narratives, but the, the, the Western main popular narrative is um, it was instantiated by William Cullen um, around the mid-1700s. Um, Sorry, yeah, a little bit there. It, the Western narrative is? 
oh, the Western narrative, sorry, the popular narrative is really uh, instantiated by William Cullen, who was a Scottish physician around, yeah, mid-1700s. Um, and he kind of described it as a general tension. And this is the type of classification of neurosis that I started with, which was there was a kind of alienation of the subject from society in a psychological sense. So, for example, um, that his or her thoughts weren't corresponding um, naturally to the environment. So we have a question of agency there, um, of whereabouts these kind of disturbing, compulsive, fixating thoughts are coming from. Um, but um, to be honest, like most things, you can bring the etymology um, and the origins of neurosis and more disturbances in the mind all the way down to the ancient Greeks. Yeah. Um, because they were quite holistic in their approach. When they talk about world spirit, um, it also included the psyche. So, But it was really the mid-18th century where there started to be a kind of conflict, and that makes sense to me purely because of the cultural malaise at the time, which is... Yeah, I was going to say, do you think that the kind of almost conformity that comes from terms such as neurosis maybe that has something to do with with the process of the enlightenment Ooh, well that's interesting um i th i think that first of all um neurosis for me is is neither bad nor good it's a capacity a fundamental capacity to be able to um have consciousness of the world now that becomes a bit metaphysical but but let's bracket that off for a second. The question then would be when, at what point does that repetition of thought and fixation become unhealthy or healthy, right? Um, and mm -hmm. in the Enlightenment, it seems very strange that you have a whole epoch of thinkers who are completely fixated on certain thoughts, rigorous, disciplined, um, completely um, prioritizing the concept, for example, idealism, um, yet not wanting to uh, describe their projects as neurotic. It seems like you can't have, you, you've got to have both. You can't have, you can't have obsession of thoughts and the prioritizing of thoughts to such an extre extreme without also realizing that it might have other effects. So if, if there's a, if you have, if you're having a lock in to idealism, materialism, rationalism, that you're saying is, inherently um, a neurotic tension because you're locking yourself to one fixed fixed point. I think it's the locking, but I also think maybe it's also about what gets us up in the morning and what gives us influence, what is what are our passions. And I think these things have been moralised too much in a humanist world when I think we should see that some of those reasons are actually should be seen in a more derogatory, well, not pejorative sense, that they're actual obsessions. So uh, examples, for example, things like uh, we see uh, the Beautiful Mind film and uh, the Stephen Hawkins Theory of Everything film. Now, these films recently are disclosing um, the knowledge that these people that have done fantastic things in the name of science or mathematics 
it's actually been down to more uh, this physiological and psychological capacity to be obsessed with something and nothing else. And I think it's about time that we take on board the power of this type of neurotic thinking. Um, and yeah, basically, instead of just suggesting that it all comes from just, you know, the just trying to discover the truth or some kind of form of discipline. And there's, an, there's a whole other thing going on. So the the other thing going on is isn't isn't passion or talent. It's it's uh, by the sounds of what you're saying, an almost transcendental obsession. Well, yes, and I think that breaks into two points. Um, obviously, because I'm a philosopher, I, um, I have to try and find first principles to support my argument. So the first part of that is how does consciousness work anyway? And that's a huge question, but let's reduce it down to um, you've either got some form of faculty, a priori faculty, let's say, in, in the mind that is inherently rational, which allows us to um, to have unity of perception, unity of consciousness, memory, and so forth, um, mm-hmm. Or on the other side, we have a kind of naturalist, materialist idea, which is there are things out there in the world that just are, and that because they just are, um, outs- you know, so the in itself, if you like, or just the things as they stand in a realist sense, mm-hmm. then we all we don't we already have that sense of unity and consistency because that's how the world is. Now, both of those arguments haven't been uh, a, a very uh, they're not very popular either. Those two, and I, I see the history of. Um, continental philosophy and post-structuralism as trying to answer the question of consciousness on in a different way. So, for example, when Deleuze talks about difference and repetition, this is almost the prototypical of neurosis. He's looking for a new way of figuring out how experience, unity of experience, consistency, subsistency of experience um, works and the way he talks about it is in a more inhuman and immoral way, different mechanisms at work that aren't to do with rationality and neither are they to do with some kind of physicalist world. So in short, I believe neurosis, the, the capacity to fixate is actually very, is um, necessary for us to be able to, to live a life and to cohere with a world of, of symbols that we remember every day. So, what's in, what's interesting though is, as you said about you, you, you think we should utilize that the the capacity to to be neurotic to have, n- utilize neurosis as as a means. Um, do you not think that that do you not think that wishing to utilize neurosis is in itself neurotic? <laughs> Yeah, I could see that. I could see that the wishing suddenly becomes kind of political as well, or psychological in the sense of a wish fulfillment. But um, I think the desire for the wishing is has come about through an emergency of thinking because of the um, – when we talked before about rough ideas for this, we were talking about um, capitalist realism. Um, and 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 those the machinery set up 
is so asphyxiating um, that it's basically kind of forced uh, for is tr- is forcing subjects to think differently and rethink, and part of that is part of that is a neurosis for a new way out. But we've got to remember that capitalism, in the Deleuze Guattari sense, is great at appropriating all things from the outside, and it's appropriated mm-hmm. it's appropriated neurosis. The way we um, navigate on a day to day, yeah in day-to-day is through obsessing about social status, monetary status, sexual status, career status. None of these things, all these things are semiotic. They don't exist as properties. They're all, um, I would say, neotic constructs. So capitalism has appropriated neurosis very well, and we all abide by these things without too much, you know, uh, rebellion. So, um Neurosis was bound to happen when some of those things weren't going to fit with our lifestyles. And the neurosis is also a type of answer to use that power to rethink, as Nietzsche said, to reevaluate uh, all values. Mm. The reevaluation of, of values this, this is a, it's an interesting, interesting point because <clears throat> when you say something's got value, there's, um, there's clearly maybe you'll disagree but there's clearly um at least even a, a semiotic or a symbolic structure has been has been built there historically over time um so the the big question with this is if if capitalism is uh reterritorializing neurosis in in a way in which people begin to fixate on on structures of its own structures which support it structures which help it and propagate it isn't the just continual deconstruction of structures which which often you know it it flows this deconstruction flows out from these structures into into everything uh isn't isn't that a kind of mainline to uh to nihilism isn't that seriously unhealthy in the long run not really, because I think if you take meaning seriously, then you want to um, you want to discover it now. When, and it's very difficult to discover meaning in capitalism because meaning, majority of meaning in capitalism, is contextual. For example, going to Marx with an idea of exchange. A certain object means something in relation to how much it's worth, its equivalent, you know, equivalent value, or, or because it's been made by that certain person, that and that relates to some kind of authenticity. Now, I think that's looking for meaning which goes past that is in, is is very valuable. I don't think that's nihilistic. I mean, for example, this might sound a bit antiquated, but when we talk about the big, the big things like love, um, God, freedom; those th- three things can't be have an equivalent to something else. You don't look for something that represents God or something that represents love. You say you have it. Well, yeah, in terms of deconstruction, the uh, the capacity to love could be deconstructed into uh, simple chemistry. I imagine. Um, yeah. Um, um, as for God. 
you 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 could deconstruct that historically. Uh, this is this is what I mean is um, once once everything gets thrown into this this thresher of uh, deconstruction and I guess you know not to sound too Peterson esque but postmodernism, mm. it sort of uh, just begins to atomize into you know and it, and it's yet to find its terminal like micro form like the smallest thing you can destruct it deconstruct it down to so like mm. wherein is the justification of transgression of current structures well okay well Other that's taking a different a term revolutionary sense yeah exactly okay because i think because i'm kind of on your side there that, that i mean let's not turn it into john peterson you know conference whatever but conversation but he's got a point where he talks about the fundamental requirements of hierarchy um, but we're not, uh, let's get this straight. I'm not saying let's all go and do whatever we want. I'm suggesting that the initial structure of meaning itself, at least historically in the last kind of 500 years, I'm being very vague here, is set up on a symbolic uh, stage. And I think neurosis, uh, again, neurosis in a neutral sense, not bad or good, has a lot um Neurosis is part of that structure, that symbolic structure, which allows us to re- relate and have and react and, and have reflexes to that s- symbolic world that we live in. Um, so, first of all, I'm saying we might not need to have an alternative, but let's first suggest that neurosis is a condition for for that structure, and then I'm saying. I'm not. I'm not really like a kind of this radical thinker. I, it comes from my philosophical idea, which is simply I call reality tautological, which is very similar to kind of what capitalist realism might be describing, which basically means x equals x. If I see a cup, then the concept cup exists, and I use it as a cup. If I see a red light, blah blah blah. It's kind of Straussian semiotics here. Um, now, um, we have the capacity, I believe, in a, in a good old-fashioned idealistic sense, that we can change the meaning of, uh, as uses of objects um, through putting through uh, appropriating different concepts and, and things like that. So what I'm interested in is not necessarily an al- a, a transgressive alternative, but just trying to kind of experiment within the confines of what we've got. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So for example- yeah. There's a, there's a great quote in relation to Wittgenstein. Um, I don't think he said it, but someone said it about him where, uh, you know, a broom, the use of a broom is different when you want to sweep the floor and when you want to break a window. Mm-hmm. Um, the the appropriation of the object in context. But I, f- I feel that that's a pretty limited scope, though. Yeah. Um, can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah. I think what needs to be, there needs to be a two-sided perspective on that idea yes it's limited because it feels like it's just some kind of wordplay use play on an object um that can just change one thing to another and not really do anything drastically uh important but but we've got to remember that um not only can we change the use of a broom or something but it's 
predicated that we respond to our environment as those things. So this is when determination comes in. Um, we are determined by those current uses. Let's say it's a kind of or high, um, an order of meaning, an order of signs. Um, and I think we could maybe try to experiment and experiment with how we react to those, not simply just creating new ones, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think we need to. I mean, we we really are extremely determined by when I when I walk into a, a room, um, I'm already I'm not having to think. This is kind of a Heideggerian idea, really. Um, I'm not really thinking about how I'm maneuvering around the objects, how I'm sitting on a chair, how I'm using how, how I'm using my breathing breathing functions, um, um, how I turn the light switch on, how how every every object that I engage with is a kind of one-sided engagement with the contract is not reciprocal. Um, it's de- demanded of me through those objects. Um, and that can be really problematic because the, the exaggeration of that is that we just become blind to the, the meaning as uses of objects and just go around and they kind of have their they they have their revenge on us, and we we even treat ourselves as objects among other objects. And I think this is what mass conformism is, and I think this is what capitalism. You know, we've got to look at philosophical problems in capitalism, not simply political ones, right? Um, yeah. And the the the, the, de- the determination of objects through their use, which is basically a kind of pragmatism gone mad. Um, is creating a type of sonambulistic, zombie-like uh, culture. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so then the key question is, how does neurosis help the zombie? <laughs> well, is that the, the great, cure? Mm, the great thing with, with, <laughs> neur- with neurosis is, is that it's not something that you kind of instantiate by yourself in a good old kind of Cartesian way, like when Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, he's kind of got this self-causing idea of thoughts. Now, you're going to get people, this is where maybe the traditional idea of neurotic comes in, you're going to get people that just start to have thoughts that aren't, as I would say, tautological. They start to see the cup that their grandma gave them, for example, that they just take out in the cupboard, from the cupboard. They the, the the chap starts to see this cup and remembers that her his grandma is dead and that they used to flick let's say coins into this cup and suddenly this cup has become uh, a completely different symbolic object and uh, he doesn't want to drink out of it and if he does maybe he tastes copper because of this idea of the past um, this is exactly what we were talking about a few seconds ago with changing um, meanings of objects but it's something that just comes because concepts don't always fit nicely together. You know, uh, another example is you maybe love, you maybe have a girlfriend you fall in love with, and then you find out that that girlfriend has that's um, had sex with your twin brother or something. Now that you're going to have a conflict here, whether you like it or not, the world isn't a nice tidy place. And those sorting through those concepts or simply the, the animated tension between those concepts will become apparent. 
So I think it's going to happen whether we like it or not. This is what neurosis is. It's the res- the residual symbolic and conceptual nature of things when they're not tied away. Right. So then, almost. I mean, this is this is. Uh, I have to alter the question a bit because it's obviously the classic question would be, "What do you do with those who can't fit in?" But I would alter that to say, "So then, what do you do when someone's uh, neurosis?" takes them down a path wherein they can no longer assimilate into society. But philosophically, what do you do with that being? Yeah. I liked how I used the word assimilate there, bonus points, because <laughs> I use the word all the time. Um, and you can see how they pay off each other, right? There was a general structure. Yeah. That and then, um, it's an academic word. You put it in essays a lot and you sound smart. It's great. Can you say that again? Sounds a bit sorry. Oh, I said assimilate is a is a you know it's it's pure academies. You put it in your essay a lot, like thus, etc., and makes it makes it look good. <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> I should be more specific. I, I can see, uh, but but I have to use certain words because certain ontologies haven't got it right. I'm all for um, ambiguity, you know. Um, assimilation yeah. doesn't necessarily mean causal determination. And it doesn't necessarily mean um, a, a rational capacity. So I'm looking for something. I actually started reading a lot of Manuel Delando and Jane Bennett recently, and they're a bit more on what I'm my wavelength here. They talk about certain determinations, but that's another point. Um, so what happens to the to the neurotic when they become what alienated from that assimilation? Is that the question? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you what 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 you know what's the philosophical problem there how, how you know because the, the 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 i don't want to go down the political route because that's a question of rehabilitation blah 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 that's probably been talked about to death well you know what's the the philosophical point there you know what's happening there well the philosophical point is neutral and i'll always have to say this that i don't think philosophy cares too much about right or wrong or politics i always say that from day one um, obviously, it feeds into it. You can have neuroses that are moral and immoral. Um, mm-hmm. But um, capitalism itself is highly neurotic. So um, that's just obvious to me. Um, just through the, the sheer dual, amount of- the, like The dual pincers of Deleuze and Guattari's deterioration and retailization are just kind of a fluxing neurosis of economy. Yeah, pretty much. That's not eloquently said, yeah. Um, so um, that's obvious to me. So it would just be if someone is alienated from that, they're still using the neurotic capacity, but the excess of meaning that's tried to be, that tries, as Deleuze and Qatari talk about, that tries to be captured. Um, yes, there's going to be a point where they're going to feel traditionally um, depressed, um, alienated, um that's something that I can't quite I don't know what how to talk about that because I would suggest that that those feelings are actually constructions based on you know the way that society is mi- uh, okay so attention against that which is you know supposed of you exactly yeah so I think I, and also the, the questions that I don't really have a kind of um, way out. I'm a bit like Nick Land here. There is no, 
There was no level two to it. It's just, I can't give an answer to what those people should do, but I can tell them that um, what they're dealing with is part of a very, for lack of a better word, natural process. And they shouldn't feel alienated because, because of their, their values are different to others. Um, the question for me would be finding within the main tautology of capitalism, eking away those things that look necessary and finding out that they're not there to do with actually indexing concepts onto things. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned land there. Do you think there's a, there's a means to utilize neurosis uh, as a means of acceleration? Um, well, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the neurotic turn that I, that I, um, edited was going to have a Nick Land essay in. I was talking to him quite a lot and, um, he did send me an essay and I really enjoyed it. And I think we're going to use it. Me and my team at the, um, center of experimental ontology in Lincoln are going to use that paper for something. Um, and it was so there's a direct correlation because he seemed very enthusiastic about this and he described it in the similar way that, that you're saying. Um, the need to accelerate, I think neurosis is innately um, an accelerationist uh, capacity. Um, mm-hmm. But the thing is, let's not be too naive. You can accelerate something to such an extent that it, that it becomes extremely static. <clears throat> so you can accelerate thought to such an extent to see um, the world as a certain thing. And it takes mm-hmm. all your energy and all the um, hyper um, speeds of thought to fixate in order to create that sense of status quo, you know? So we we don't want to make the mistake that acceleration is simply one-sided where it goes beyond the status quo. Acceleration is also maintained to preserve it. Um, Right? Yeah. It takes a certain amount of energy to uh, neurotically escape the human, and eventually it kind of always drags you back, which, uh, which would imply that there is some back... But is that itself a, a you know a structure? But this is again is getting into pure land stuff because this is simply what the human security system you know is that that's the you know the means the means of escape from that is is kind of uh, I guess you'd say hyper neurosis you know. Mm-hmm. Well, all I'm saying is it works both ways. I think the idea of a human natural subject is extremely neurotic. I think it's a argument that has been instantiated over and over again in order to create a sense of its validity and that happens in philosophy all the time philosophy is a competing arena of neuroses a competing arena of opinions not only opinions that try and argue but also opinions that try and maintain a certain idea of something right this goes back to the idea of tautology um so in the Landian, I'm not as materialistic as Land. I empathise with with I Kant is probably most important philosopher still for me that to this day. Um, um, I'm more thinking I uh, about. I, I don't know if I'd classify Land as a materialist. He's uh, mm. he mentioned in, in in my interview with him about you know 
time, the future doesn't come from the present, the present doesn't come from the past. So, you know, that's not strictly a materialist position. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it could be. You know, we have so many different ideas of materialism now. I think um, near materialism, I think that's difficult to hash out isn't it right now but i think if there's a kind of causal loop from the from the from the future let's say to a present then that still could be a material that could be a material that's just unknown to us that we haven't Mm -hmm. figured out yet but um but um so i'm suggesting that there is a million ways to think the subject. And actually, if you look at the history of philosophy, it's pretty, uh, this is maybe a bit like Eugene Thacker, even though I haven't, I'm not completely, uh, what's the word? I don't know his work too well, but you can look at the history of philosophy. I, I think he says as a kind of horror, right? Horror narrative. Um, and I think you can do the same thinking about neurosis. You've got, um, you've got Descartes who, thinks that there's some kind of neurotic devil doubting him all the time. Um, you have various different constructions of the subject. Um, mm-hmm. And we haven't got there yet. So the question is, that power to rethink the subject mm-hmm. is extremely scary and interesting. Um, and I think neurosis so the re- the is realization to do so. of one's compulsion towards such structures as subject that in itself is is a it's a process of a, a horror process a process of horror to to realize uh, the kind of uh, continual maze of of locked you know locked doors dead ends <laughs> that you, you and you're never going to not end up in a dead end that's horrifying <laughs> right exactly yeah uh, there's no it's the unheimlich there's no really home within a home um so then, so then, you know. So then, what is the task there of deconstruction? If 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 they're acknowledging this, if this has been acknowledged many times, that do you simply kind of almost combine, you know, Deleuze and Guattari's concept of the nomad uh, with with a heightened neuroticism and just continually move from point to point to point to point, you know, attempting to never stagnate. But then that that process in itself is once again a neuroticism. So, mm. you know, answer my own question. It kind of goes back to my point of I'm just trying to disclose the capacity. I mean, for me to suddenly say that's the right way to do it or that's the right way to be neurotic would just be um, neurotic. idiotic, wouldn't it? Um, it's kind of like saying how should physics be or something. Like it just is. And I don't know, but that's probably a bad example, but... You can see where I'm going, right? And then it's up to us mm-hmm. to add a secondary quality to that or add a secondary mm-hmm. you know, reason to that. Um, okay, yeah. Okay, that, that, that makes sense. Yeah. So what's, your, what's uh, if you don't mind me asking, what's your, since you've delved into this, what have you figured to be your personal, um, your personal relation to your own neuroticism? Where, where are you taking it? You know, and just as an example to what one can do. Where am I to? <clears throat> well, at first I was simply interested in a phenomenological perspective on capitalism. So it's quite safe, mm-hmm. normal student academic thing. I wasn't trying to be too out there or anything. And I was trying to su- suggest that um, using Sartre's first uh, kind of dictum when he talks about um, the only thing that 
has existence which precedes essence as us human beings. And mm-hmm. he started using that in a kind of Promethean, um, liberating way. But also that means that 99.9% of everything else in the world has a concept there before it, which therefore means it's going to have a, 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 a preordained sign. So then what happens is you're going to have a determinism because everything else, there's no, a Hoover didn't start being and then suddenly we had the concept Hoover. We had to put the concept there first. Everywhere we look. Hoover in the world. (laughs) Everywhere we look, it's all there meant for us, which means everywhere we look, it's already going to have a relation to us based on that way. Um, So I wanted to explain that, that those the power, you know, it's kind of slightly object oriented, but let's not go too far that way, which is that the, the reality is made of these chunks of these types of tautological objects. Uh, for example, and this is very Graham Harmonous, when, um, when a chair falls over, it falls over as a chair. It doesn't fall over as atoms and particles or some kind of empirical quality. So there's something interesting happens there. You have a vitalism or kind of animism where, not only do we have objects that are meant to be certain things for us, they start acting in relation to other objects as that thing as well. He talks about fire burning mm-hmm. cotton and fire only only relating to certain parts of the cotton and things like this. Now, things are relating as these tautical objects, whether we like it or not. So that was the first point, and it was a criticism of capitalism because I basically equated capitalism with the idea of this tautology because they want to have a smooth operational space. Um, And then I realized that through the power of philosophizing, constant philosophizing, which, yes, you could see as deconstruction, sure, infinite deconstruction of meanings and concepts, um, I started seeing that as... um, as neurotic and that to me that makes perfect sense i just think it's maybe we just haven't got quite far enough we're a bit too humanist yet i think i think that the idea that we have thoughts whether we like it or not and the idea that we can fixate and meditate upon thoughts for a very long time is obviously well to me it's closer to an idea of neuroticism than any other form of thinking in western yeah like like most philosophical uh, lineages and roots. I kind of see this heading back towards the general concept of death and mortality because, uh, as you say, to paraphrase Land here from our interview, you know, we don't know what the human or the human is or humanism is yet. It hasn't hasn't formed itself perhaps because, and this isn't Land, this is me, but perhaps because it has yet to have a truly neurotic tension, you know, we haven't had AI yet, we haven't had, you know, and I'm delving down the into the labyrinth of conspiracy theorists, but we haven't had things like AI and aliens or um, mass catastrophic events which truly put a frame on humanism. We've had like a, a fairly pleasant linear ride as humans. That's interesting because... Because I think the state of play at the moment in this Landian sense is that we, that um, capitalism uses us only as neurotic subjects, i.e. it doesn't need us to have morals or any form of like those natural or um, traditional um, uh, baggage of the human. It just needs us to respond to desire in certain ways and to conform, mm-hmm. to buy this, to buy that, to... to um, 
to be a slave to this or that. So the subject in the moment, if, if I can be so ambitious, the subject, the current subject is neurotic in the sense that that is, it has been reduced simply down to itself being an object within that circul- circulatory system. Now, if new AI and all these other things, if they're going to come about, it's probably not going to come about through capitalism in the sense of the safe, the safe capitalism, because it won't want, unless it can appropriate, because well, what I'm saying is it's going to come from people, individuals, neurotic individuals that are looking mm-hmm. for landscapes outside of that horizon. Right. And they're going to be, I think this is my point that I think, um, these individuals or collectors or societies, um, let's not forget that intelligence is not really owned by capitalism. It's owned more. I mean, it's something that's actually tries to be um, you, oppressed, right? It just, you just cut out for a second there. It's something that it... Intelligence itself is something that's not really... Um, it, it's oppressed by capitalism because it only wants a certain amount if it, if it has too much. Yeah, I was going to say, but ironically, it's also its greatest asset in terms of its own uh, structural becoming. Structural, well, just, yeah, structure. Yeah, I know, but I think it's a different intelligence. That's a different conversation. I think I think intelligence that's simply pragmatic is not complete intelligence. I think intelligence needs, in a Kantian sense, the sensibility and um, imagination and all these other things. Um, the artistic tendencies are less valued. An, an obvious example is that, it's just a really boring example of that, is just all the cuts to all artistic institutions. But um, if there's going to be a tension between these new horizons, that'll be interesting because where does the neurotic subject fit in then? Um, you know, will capitalism seems to be able to appropriate everything that we throw at it so it will probably do the same mm-hmm. right? is this, maybe this is Nick Land's point well, know, but. what's interesting here is, is the language you use is as far as I can see sort of kind of 80% Heidegger so what what was uh, what would, what would his conclusion be here because it's clear to me that you've used a lot of Heidegger uh, the, 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 the neurotic being you speak of is, is thrown into the world of symbols um and you know the, the, his key concepts, such as the ready at hand, are, are you know they 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 breathe into this you know very very easily. Mm. Um, well, yeah, maybe I'm just kind of um, jumping on the Heidegger bandwagon. Who knows? But I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to just carry on trying to uh, to teach Heidegger's ways. I mean. The present at hand is exactly the tautological sphere. It's the things in the present that mean something in a certain situation. But I would argue that um, <clears throat> the ready to hand, which is the world of non-theoretical description, which is just the world we live in, is equally just as um, determined by concepts. Just because we don't think about it and turn a door handle doesn't mean that that's some kind of primal structure of being it just means that we've it's become so we've become so determined that it's a tacit reflex right mm-hmm. so that's where we well i disagree to some extent with his idea of a general primordial being underlying things that, um but the threefold structure of being thrown into a world of um 
of acting on the plane of imminence um, and then the projecting that into the future um, is where I start really with just a general uh, just with the subject basically and its orientation but then I begin to start worrying about this idea of the projection into the future because what future and does it exist yeah I was going to say that's already a neurotic um, belief uh, and faith in history and even um, more you're, you're, I'm sorry yeah well I'm just saying you're already reliant on history and from history uh, is, is you know just uh, uh, a continuum of of different structures. Um, so you you're reliant on so much. As soon as you you posit a, a, a historical being, you do. And this is where I don't like hiding it really. But but it gets just as scary and weird when you think about the th- being thrown into the world as wrong as well. Because this is extremely sceptical. But we don't really know. We have memories of a past. I'm not saying the past doesn't exist, but we have memories of a past and that's all we get to deal with on a phenomenological level. We don't get to deal with the real existent lives of whatever that past is. So it's actually all imminence. No, uh, 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 And also uh, with regard to Heidegger, the, the, the word past has some difficulties because you, uh, uh, as your past existing as memories is consistently only the present, mm. you know, there's no literally uh, that you know there never is a past kind of exactly uh, exactly yeah it's like a recollection of a recollection that's what a memory is but it's existing in the present because you're always thinking of the past now you know uh, Heidegger said you're always pushing it in front of you absolutely and I think there might be more to be said there in, the, I, in my new book which will be out in a few months um, I call it memory space I'm sure that's been a, a term that's been used before but uh, now I'm interested in well, how do institutions or capitalism, if we can be vague, um, how do they uh, mobilise a memory space, not just a space that's determined, not just a way to manoeuvre around and, and, and have reactions to symbols, but also how do they embed a sense of memory in that space? Um, and that becomes interesting because if if there were no memory then you kind of would have constant uh, revolution right you need to if you woke up one day and didn't and, and realize that all laws were maybe yesterday but yesterday doesn't exist anymore then anything goes so there has to be some kind of enforcement of memory every day for things like etiquette very simple things um that that's becoming more and more interesting to me I think we're leaving out that idea and the space for it to be filled. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, that's interesting. That's an interesting critique of Heidegger anyway. Um, thanks. <laughs> is there any a, a, any other directions you'd, you'd like to take this in? Well, I think I do have a knack of being a bit obtuse and I think the um, going back to where I was going with neurosis, as I said, I was starting with a phenomenological description of a world and I realized that maybe neurosis was a way out of deconstructing the historical contingent frameworks of a society um at the same time I found out that the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders made neurosis redundant in the 1980s so obviously 
the first question is, well, what's going on? Um, <clears throat> and it doesn't take a lot of research to realise that the term basically just was too elusive for the type of clinical psychology at the time. You know, you couldn't, there wasn't necessarily a causal reason for neurosis. It couldn't be found in a kind of neurological materialist like place or symptom in the brain or something. So there's, ov- there's obvious reasons why it didn't fit with this. So kind they, of pseudo- they fragmented it. They fragmented it. In what sense? Well, did they, did they, you know, fragmented neurosis into into you know a plethora of other conditions. I imagine anxiety, depression, social anxiety, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, surely in in the, in the, in this way of looking at things, one can only then see that the atomization and fragmentation mm. of neurosis mm. is simply a means to a, a a more efficient means of herding uh, meat puppets. <laughs> that's yeah that's interesting um i would say maybe it was down to just the ontological capacity of neurosis itself like like surely we're, oh, what happens when you repress neurosis itself <laughs> that's basically what happened you have a whole society saying no no let's put that all the way over there like even if mm. if we've learned anything from people like Nick Land, people like Bruno Latour, people like Graham Harmon, we realise that things that aren't necessarily real, you know, quote unquote, still have immense signified reality. capacity. Yes, exactly, reality. So if a hundred, hundred thousand people think about a certain, you know, goddess or thing, then it becomes part of their social fabric. And neurosis is exactly that. It's, and to just try to throw it away is going to be dangerous because you're repressing a symptom that naturally will never stay repressed. Um, not only that, the, con- the more of the conspiratorial take would be that it had to go because we realized, we realized that the things that were meant to be healthy, the bourgeois, you know, to sound a bit stereotypical, but the, the bourgeois white working man with a career and with goals is a neurosis i.e it's not a substantial enough meaning to do it it's not do you know what i'm saying like it's not why what's the final meaning behind doing that going you know get a nice car well this is it i know now i'm saying nihilistic but i don't i don't think i'm being nihilistic i think i'm being idealistic and suggesting Mm-hmm. there are better there are ways there are more meaningful ways than yeah you know the just the repetition of buying products um mm-hmm. so this is where the relation to objects comes in you know um uh you could use marx's language here and say the fetishization of objects is is you know a means to neurotic control in a way so uh, maybe this is maybe this is at heart a materialist debate well, yeah, what is, you know, what is material? I think becomes <laughs> the question. Um, and I think it's still stuck in conceptual classifications of matter. So mm-hmm. I don't believe in some kind of naive uh, actual matter that's going to rear its head and we can all go, yes, that's the final product. Um, 
the constant mutability of matter through concepts is what I'm interested in. But the the conspiratorial part is exactly that. Like maybe we just realized that if we kept neurosis, we'd all be neurotic, right? Because that term, if you read it in the Diagnostical Statistical Manual before 1980, applies to every single one of us because we are um, spurred on, engaged in highly symbolic modes of production without any recourse to a natural means or on reflection. Um, It's on reflection, it seems absurd. And that's an obsession. That's a, it's an absurd obsession to absolutely absurd obsession to wish to, um, well, it's uh, involuntary work, um, compulsory work every day, um, from nine o'clock in the morning or earlier till five o'clock to then have one leg come out of the working, um, assimilation straight into the leisure assimilation, which is created, um, in exactly the same way which determines us, which gives us drink to try and relax us. This is a psychological mm-hmm. point that Freud talks about when he talks about the pleasure principle. It's, it's a cathexis. It's you, you, they create the stress and then they determine means of how it can be alleviated. Um, and that's what we do. And that, that's pretty much part and parcel our, our society. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's, that's neurotic. So I'm saying, you know, in a, in a conspiracy, conspiratorial way that, we had to basically just said that neurosis doesn't exist. So then we're not neurotic. We're just doing mm. the right thing. So the, the, those, those who go to the doctors for depression can't simply say, well, you know, I don't want to work. You know, that's not <laughs> exactly. what I want to do with my, it's not what I want to do with my finite time. And then the answer is, well, you, you have to. So here's X that makes having to do that to survive bearable. I mean, you know, uh, uh, this, that's not, that's not a world I'm actually, um, too sympathetic to i uh, uh, i'm i'm kind of for work as long as it's uh not kind of bureaucratical nonsense i you know well yeah and, and i i probably light and be a bit more lighthearted as well when it comes to <clears throat> the work being naturally healthy and, and so on and so forth but you know what are we doing with all these qualities? Let's let's go along with what I'm saying. All those all these neurotic capacities, like mm-hmm. what are we doing with them? We're just uh, okay. Tautological yeah. reality represses all forms of different associ- uh, conceptual association. It just wants you to see car go into it. Now you're a car driver. Then you go and play tennis, and you become assimilated by a tennis court. You're tennis yeah. player. I think I think a lot of them are probably. Um... Like almost physically repressed to behind closed doors. I mean, I've never been to a a new friend's house where they didn't have some strange thing that they did that was specific to their house that they just always did. Like I've never met anyone who wasn't a bit weird. Um, yeah, and it's it's the hiding of that. Okay, that's interesting because you've also got the same at the same time in the last twenty years at least this massive neurosis for, for a fake type of authenticity. So have you noticed this? People want to have tattoos in certain places. They want to say everyone now wants to go and live. The, they want to go on holiday and see the whole world. They want to mm-hmm. they want to listen to this specific type of music and they want to tell everyone that this, this type of specific. So this is quite depressing because it's basically just saying that capitalism is won again. It's giving you the illusion 
that you're trying to be unique and live an authentic life. If something's working, then capitalism's winning. (laughs) And if it's not working, it's gone. Straight away, yeah. Or or, or it's uh, a very, very, very tiny, stagnant population somewhere that no one knows about because as soon as they connect back into the circuitry, Mm. it either gets subsumed or it gets destroyed because it's of no use. Um, Yeah, but who cares about use? I mean, that's one of my least favourite terms. Um, It seems to be the most... It seems to be a priority for everything now, the use. I've become quite interested in anoraks. People, these are high neurotic in the sense that they collect, in a Marxist sense, they collect, let's say, old toys or figures from the 1950s or 60s. Now, there's no innate value to these pieces of plastic that probably cost 5p. Another example is record collectors. And the vinyl cost yeah. maybe even less, 2 or 3p to make vinyl. <clears throat> it's all simply... Nostalgia plays a part, sure, but it's all highly symbolic um, and they live in that world. And to the point where I would go as far to say when it comes to relations with other people, they try and find a way to put that neurosis onto other people. They say, oh, by the way, this is what I'm into. You know, how how incredible is that? Um, It's interesting starting starting to to see interrelations based on my kind of general idea of neurosis because you have to basically start thinking like what are p- people's passions enthusiasms their esoteric yeah like enthusiasms are all you can't separate the subject from that from them anymore they identify with these neuroses and that becomes that. identities identity is a is a construct mm-hmm. even if john Peterson wants yeah. to criticize me um so yeah, yeah, that becomes interesting. Perhaps we just need to take some responsibility. <laughs> that's Peterson, isn't it? Um, yeah, that was a Peterson joke. Sort <laughs> yourself out. I think, I think my main criticism, which is not even to do with philosophy anymore, is that I, I know so many people who are saying, "Yeah, you know, I'm do I do what I like. I, I'm doing everything I want to do." Uh, no, you don't. They don't, and you you don't want to be the party pooper. But all you're thinking is, no, you don't. <laughs> yeah, and and it's easy for, and it, it takes a really strong personality to. It's, it's maybe a, sounds bad, but a Christian, a Christian idea. You have to accept your own humility. Like maybe you and I need. Maybe we're doing a little bit more than than some other people. Let's say, but it's still we're still we have to accept our humiliation that we're still not doing it. I'm still, I'm still subscribing in doing this podcast (laughs) and doing my blog to an identity of, uh, you know, a kind of almost a myth of intelligence. I know that in the back of my mind, um, it takes something to, to, to accept that. But I mean, that that applies to everything. There's a, you know, you could apply that to every meal has some form of identity that you're like, you know, you're eating some Mediterranean food and you're, you're subscribing to Absolutely. to a certain vision in the back of your mind. Absolutely. But then the power to maybe for a child to be at the dinner table and start using the prawns on the plate and starts using them as a toy or wearing them as earrings. Now that might sound absurd, mm-hmm. but inside that something philosophical is happening. Something, the, the, status quo of the use uh, which includes the social use because you're in a restaurant and there are certain rules in a restaurant this is a wittgenstein idea really like mm. with language games yeah. um mm-hmm. and to re 
to to through their neurosis, which is through their own creative mind, which is infinitely deconstructive of all things, they can create. Yes, it's not the it's it's quite a predictable alternative mm-hmm. to, to the prawns, but still, it still involves the capacity to reappropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then they reappropriate the naughty step, and all punishment is lost. <laughs> Are you saying that's a bad thing? No, I'm saying you know. Well, what happens? What happens when you? What happens when the prisoner reappropriates the prison to be mm. paradise? This is it. I don't believe there's any like outside real freedom. If the person, if the prisoner wants to construct his own, it's not even an imagine. It's not even an imaginary thing anymore. It's his own. It's his own conceptual relation to his environment can be reappropriated mm-hmm. to such an. Yeah. such an extreme sense then that becomes it there, there is no real outside there is no real freedom so mm-hmm. um if that's true yeah. and i think a lot of people would agree with me it becomes it has to then become about ways in which you twist and turn the mechanisms inside to suit or not suit you and to find i think maybe this is my in, in my artistic nature because i did a ba in art so um a goldsmith um that i think it's must be an it's, it's an aesthetic um criteria <clears throat> that is mm-hmm. it might not be any good or bad or even social progression it's just simply the experimentation but i think there's health there's something healthy about experiment i mean this is nietzsche for me like experimentation is a form of freedom basically um, and experimentation is a way to fit something for you, which was maybe previously not for you. Um, to find a way to identify with something um, is an extremely healthy thing. Um, and I think we're all a bit too ill because we've all we're all a bit we're done we're done trying to appropriate. And I know there's this criticism yeah. of I feel like maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like maybe you you, you know, there's a this, the elephant in the corner is well, we've been doing the deconstruction thing right for whatever, 60 years, and it's not... Yeah, it hasn't worked out too well. <laughs> well <laughs> he uh, says quietly. Yeah, exactly. Um, I can't think of a more... And this is on tape, whatever. I can't think of a more productive 50, 60 years than the ones that were the um, deconstructive epoch. I, I mean, I've got a book you should borrow. It's called The History of the Victorians. I think that was hmm. a great 50 years. <laughs> it, the history of the Victorians what, sorry? No, just the history of the Victorians. It was just a joke about the productivity. I mean, what, what, what you consider productivity. Um, uh, you know, yeah, okay, sure. I mean, in terms of philosophy, maybe. Mm. Um, I mean, how, how, do you, how do you gauge that? Well, I think you gauge that by looking at... Um, hmm. <laughs> give me a second. Um, I think the immense amount of freedom of thinking. I generally still think, and um, from the analytical school down, there has always been mm-hmm. schools of thought. There have always been doctrines, um, and I think in the nineteen. 19- 50s, 60s, I've never seen such a 
in the history of philosophy, I've never seen, I don't think anyone's ever seen such a giant multiplicity of thoughts. I really don't. I think to go from language theory to, if they want to go to embodiment theory, to new materialisms, to, um, you know, technology, Simondon, um, to, um, I mean, I'm saying that these are all gathered around that time. They might not be writing at a specific time, but that's when at least the UK got a hold of all this material. It was it was like Christmas for a philosopher, I think. Hmm. Before that, you're basically a Kantian or you're not a Kantian. You know, that's simplifying, but, you know, you could basically say what you were and your arguments for that. And there was that was tautological in itself because it was saying this is a certain way to think and this is the way to do things and yeah. if you go wrong if, if you make a mistake that's logically inconsistent but like well mm. i don't want to do logic well, let's do let's go a different way that's what i mean and i think yeah maybe i am still praising the post-structuralist kind of celebration i know people like elaine Badieu have criticized a lot of it um instead looking for the event of truth and commitment and stuff. Um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, because I still think the greatest influence... have seen nothing yet. <laughs> yeah. The greatest influence... The, the, the three biggest influences of what people are doing now, when I look at people like... When I look at people like Quantum Mersu, Graham Harmon, uh, Ray Brazier, um, Tristan Garcia, all these philosophers that maybe the landscape of contemporary philosophy, when I look at them... It does come from that, still comes from that, you know, you've still got, you need, you needed Wittgenstein, you needed Heidegger, um, needed Husserl, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was the beginning, they were the big, the precursors of starting to try completely different things, I think. So I think basically what I'm saying is, is we haven't seen the last of the advocates of that way of thinking. I think there's going to be a much larger, uh, another, maybe even another canon of thinkers that are going to be resting with these ideas. And I think I'm one of them. Oh dear. I mean, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> well, no, it's interesting. What, what, which part do you, so what do you necessarily disagree with them when it comes to the, um, because obviously uh, at the same time, I'm, I'm quite an idealist. So I think the world is mediated. Uh, it, you know what? It's not, it's not a disagreement, and this actually goes almost to a political vector of patchwork. It's not a disagreement. Mm. It's simply that I am happy for you to fail <laughs> elsewhere. Just don't do it where within a space that's going to affect my life. Like I'm absolutely fine with you know these ideas interest me. Mm. Uh, at arm's length. I love reading Foucault. I love reading post-structuralists. Um, you know, I, I enjoy reading Derrida, but I'm not. In, I'm not internalizing this as to in, uh, into a day-to-day yeah. mode of existence because that that's that's silly. Because inherent with all this is 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 the immediate. Like, well, there is already already in their arguments of deconstruction is is the the potentiality and reality of of a dead end so just you know and it that's why i kind of think you know it's super easy to criticize you know we've already laughed about him super easy to criticize people like uh peterson you know uh you know things like things like marcus aurelius you know very clear cut do this you know stoicism 
do this, do that, and you know, work and have a family. Super easy to criticize that. Uh, seemingly relatively difficult to uphold it within the postmodern culture. So I think that says something in itself. So uh, I, I, I think there should be a post-structuralist, post-post-post-post-post-modern <laughs> structuralist patch, and we'll all watch them not do any work, and I'll enjoy <laughs> reading their books. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, but I think the point might be more subtle, which is like the level of integration, because every society and every culture will have a level of alterity or difference that it will... This is fashion. Fashion is works perfectly on this, even though it's kind of... There are people that would argue that there's no real new in fashion. It's just a reproduction. But if experimentation can exist and be integrated in a certain way, well, we need that, don't we? Surely uh, the thing that you're uh, adhi- uh, you know, affirming has to have some level of creativity in, in let's say, in the hierarchy. So we don't want it to be stale. Oh, yeah. There, there's, there's got to be there's got to be difference, but as soon as this kind of coherent form of difference splits off, mm. when it's still coexisting with a previous form of difference, so you've got two different things, that's where, you know, that's where you go, right, okay, well, we need to split. You know, you, mm. and I'm not saying you can't communicate, you can't mm. react from one another, but to, to, to try form a cohesive whole of two continual differences that that's never going to happen. The whole point of patchwork. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think it's the same problem with like, the Nietzschean problem, isn't it? Like you kind of get to a dead end and you go, okay, cool. Well, what's this transvaluation of all values? What, what is the reevaluation of all values? And then you kind of go, well, it doesn't work because you just have one person doing it, you know, and then they become extricated from the society. Right, they can't exist mm-hmm. if they really want to go as far as if if they want to complete the Nietzschean doctrine, they have to do what Nietzsche actually did in a sense, which is solitude. That's the only way because then it gives you the illusion that you are doing what you're doing and it's fine. But if you did that within a society in a social contract or something, it wouldn't. It would be problematic. So it takes a more of a mature maybe vision to realize. Well, okay what we need to do is change society generally to become, and then you have to have liberal leanings or whatever leanings you want. My point would simply be, my point would simply be, well, let's look at the topology of that as um, conceptual agents and neuroses and, and let's see it in that sense, instead of stable figures of power. And maybe then we're going to learn. I mean, if I say, if I'm basically just saying, let's be careful when we have our prejudices, you know, and opinions about things, they may just be, we may just be a ventriloquist for certain desires and that we we haven't really thought about. That's quite, that's quite a um, simple thing to say. And, and it's quite a safe thing to say. I think neurosis is, my idea of neurosis is saying this. It's like, let's be careful when we just jump into that desire for X, Y, or Z we try and try and observe the mechanisms mechanisms that's happening there try and understand the conditions in which why we desire such and such like yeah he, someone could take that and go massively left with it couldn't they like leftist thing they, they can say well those conditions are a fake because of capitalism top bottom technique we need to go back to society but i don't really i haven't i don't have enough time to focus on what those ways of appropriating it would be i'm just suggesting 
the battle. I'm just suggesting where the battle is, and the battle is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, well, the, the battles in the moment where you where you kind of you realise the the futility in in the sentence. Why uh, why are you watching Game of Thrones? Because <laughs> yeah. I enjoy it. You know, already within that dynamic is su- you know such a height of futility that you go. You know what? I'll just withdraw back to myself because th- there's no point. You know what are you what are you then doing? You're just deconstructing someone else's uh, to you supposed enjoyment, but to them real enjoyment. So you know what? You, you, if they want to do it, they want to do it. Fine. Okay, mm-hmm. I'll go do my own thing. I think there must be a certain sort of. Uh, like you say, attitude wherein you're self-aware of those things. And as soon as you become self-aware of one's own neurosis, it's kind of slowly starts to kind of mutate. I mean, it's still there. Mm. Well, that's interesting because, yeah, okay, if he wants to watch Game of Thrones, no product placement on this. But anyway, if they want to watch Game of Thrones, they like it. But do they like it? This is the nagging point. Like, Yeah, this is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. Mm. But then you go... Right. Well, then for that question, you need the, the 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 meaning of they, and you need the meaning of like, and you need them in relation to what everything. And it's like, well, do you like Game of Thrones is the equivalent of like, well, what the hell's the meaning of life for that person? I you know, think I it's different. I think you can say that if something has been put out with lots of money and force onto a large amount of people, and certain your friends and colleagues are going to watch mm-hmm. something that involves very simple psychological and, and, and sociological um maneuvers which will make you think you like something and i think if we go too far down that route that you just said then we're basically just saying we're condoning you no know, we're we're saying that mass conformism is, is okay because they all like to do it you know we need to have a level of frank Furtian kind of critical analysis you know and i think the best way to do that is not, instead of saying something like um you don't really like that because it's, it's a bad show and i can show that it's a bad show through objective critique or something instead of doing all that just start from the conceptual like okay like what what are the conceptual reasons why this is enjoyable and like um what are the conditions for this to even be a program and stuff? Maybe that is going a bit too far, but I think mm-hmm. if you find out, yeah, if you find out that those conditions are political, which they will be, I guess there's a problem with thinking everything's political and the Schmidt idea. But um, if you find out that the conditions of like Jules Swans is exactly this is Lacan's a great example. If you find out that the conditions for your pleasure are political, then. Then you, then I do think it's important, and then then you are being assimilated by a form of general pleasure, which might be painful. And I do believe that there's a capacity. I mean, look, the, the perfect example is. I'm not saying this is a good thing, but when you're getting people who have devious desires, devious neuroses that, that separate from the general, um, the general production of enjoyment through capitalism sadism masochism i don't even know like even um you could even say like anorexia uh, pedophilia you can say all these things i'm not again i'm not saying these are things that are good but i'm saying that these are interesting because they're offshoots of something which aren't they don't have conditions within society they haven't been promoted I think this is probably why I'm not looking for the, uh, for the not looking forward to the next generation of uh, <laughs> post post structure. <laughs> it might be those kind of characters. Well, I'm just saying it exists, yeah. doesn't it? I'm not saying I'm saying that. Where is this? 
No, yeah, yeah, they do. Ex- they do exist, and uh, yes, we want to chop d- off our head. Discussion, you know, that where that's just going to lead to fascism, isn't it? We've got to be more understanding, uh-huh. and this is why I come from a psychological background because I do have an enormous amount of sympathy and empathy for people that have that have been affected by the stubbornness of what is meaningful in a society and they realize there are conflicts within those meanings like like oh you know i i really really i really really want to uh, drink loads of champagne all the time and talk to these expensive rich people but i don't have a job and they're going to get depressed about that you know or maybe suicidal about that there are problems inherent in, in all these situations yeah i think neurosis is a good way deconstructing it down um i'm a bit worried though that that it becomes um i'm worried that you i'd be relativizing everyone's feelings into just simply well you have that neurosis you have that thought because what happens is you have to separate yourself from those thoughts and then the thoughts aren't quite yours they're just these things floating around um that's not going to help yeah that's tricky, but okay. Um, anything, anything else you'd like to mention? I don't feel like that's a... um, hmm. not really. No, I just think maybe just generally trying to stop neurosis from being a derogatory term is my achievement. Which more was what I'm trying to achieve. Yeah, I mean, perhaps you just need to to to, to go the Heidegger route and uh create new language you know um what's new you know neuroticism change when it comes into contact with dasein because you know dasein is uh inherently an inherently different concept you know perhaps that's where neuroticism needs to begin its begin its new semantic becoming you know within not with it can't do it within uh what what we know as human history because it's too it's too steep you know you say oh he's a bit neurotic she's a bit neurotic you know that's uh that's almost you know that's assumed derogatory yeah exactly exactly and then what happens if we look at our history we look at the greatest figures of our history and we we know that they have this trait in them this obsession for greater things this obsession to always outdo themselves the obsession for rigor for detail um yet what we don't dare point at it and say neuroticism well well, that's just lying isn't it like what else is it then (laughs) because we don't live what i'm saying is we don't live in an age anymore where we're um we are what's the word um we are pushed into or or, or influenced by the good the christian idea of good or even the old philosophical idea of truth we're not these aren't engines anymore for us making work. No. So we've got to really ask serious questions of why why when we do um, intellectual and creativity creative work, why we do them. The easy aren't the first answer, which is still quite not honest, but it's not enough, is to say something like a Freudian idea, which is well, we have an ego, we wish to have validate and a Lacanian idea, we wish to be validated in the social realm, you know. But that's still not ontological enough, is it? because that's contingent on different histories. So we need to understand the the ontological factor of what makes us want to do these authentic projects. 
Um, and I still think Neurosis is sure. Neurosis is is by far the best answer we've got so far. And you don't you might not believe that. So silence is good. No. Oh, I think it's, I think it's a a good direction towards an answer, mm. and uh, it seems like a good place to finish up. Okay, thanks, James. Thank you.